now I've got a few, I, I think, I think throughout my two year term here, uh, I'm going to have a few highlights. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, there are two things that are longer than we have in the U S now, most people are like, you know, everything's small in Europe. Sure. What, you know, I think, I think uh, first of all, you know, I kid, I'm not, I, I'm not being vicious about any of this, but you know, <sighs> I, I think there's, I think there's a, a symbiotic relationship between the fact that it's really hard to find a bathroom and that people don't seem to drink very much water, judging on the availability of it and the size of cups that people use. So I think that probably works out well. Now, that's a good example of people things people think are small, but there's two things that are longer. One, beds are much longer lengthwise. Really? Yeah. I don't know if they're narrower, but they're very long lengthwise. And also, each individual piece of toilet paper is about a fourth longer than our American toilet paper. I don't know what to make out of both of those if they're related, but uh, they, they got they got lengthy things. <laughs> I love your attempt at correlation there. That was unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there must be some relation, right? Uh, th- th- there must be a reason. But uh, yeah. I mean, these these seem like good icebreaker questions in uh-huh. like a team meeting is to see what people come up with. Yeah. Well, you know, I have learned when you ask these kind of things, or you know, globally to people, it it, it takes a little while to. Uh, I think you have to switch people's minds. You got to switch their mode or their register out of like serious business, business stuff into like everyday things they've never really thought of. Like I ask these questions a lot and people are a little confused. And then I explain to them like what I'm getting at. And I think, I think they end up answering it. Like a lot of times I ask like, how do you operate this food? And it takes uh, people some time to figure out that uh, I'm, I'm asking in this, if someone like was given a fork, uh, you know, and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. I think we would be kind of flummoxed, but they, I really mean like, what do I do with this fork? Which end do I eat with? Do I put this into a cork and then put a piece of food on the other end and like eat it armless or something? Uh, so, you know, things like that. So I'll have to find out about the toilet paper. I'll report back. Yeah, no, inquiring minds want to know. Mm-hmm. Also, also closing out that topic in the hotel room I stayed in temporarily. Uh, the toilet paper was provided by the Kleenex company. And you knew that because every third or fourth sheet had the word Kleenex printed on it, or Kleenex, if you will, which is kind of an odd choice. I don't think people normally want to put their brand on toilet paper. Yeah, I guess that that not, we're not using that for the Spring One platform giveaway this year. You've spoiled it for me. Oh, so it's too late, isn't it? Otherwise, yeah. we could have done that. A roll of toilet paper? That'd, that'd yeah, it's great. practical. Sure. <laughs> Well, I think it's been several weeks uh, since we recorded. Google Next was, uh, that was last week, right? Or the week before? I've been moving, so I've lost track. <laughs> uh, yeah, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Was. That's right. Yep. That's right. What, what are significant things that happened last week? You know, there's a time zone difference here, so I've lost track of what's happening. Yeah, there's still a lot of good fallout in a good way of people kind of digesting Google Cloud stuff. So last week, you know, there were still some good blog posts on some of the machine learning stuff they shipped and some of the new cloud you know, server types and obviously stuff like we'll talk about with Knative, things like that that came out. So a lot of good stuff from the last week, kind of people digesting what uh, what came out of the show. So yeah, last week itself, though, you know, I, I like the news for Cloud Native Computing Foundation adding Harbor. To their sandbox. This is that open source container registry that VMware started years ago. I think it's their actually their most popular open source product. And so it's the only container registry in the CNCF, which is interesting. And this is part of uh, Pivotal Container Service today. So this is already something you get, but this kind of opens up more people being able to use it. And it's not just 
you know, hey, it stores images, does things like security scanning and LDAP and Active Directory integration and kind of enterprise-y things for a container registry. So I think it'll get a nicer profile now, which is pretty cool. You probably know better than I do. How many how many registries do you think are container registries are out there now? There's at least like, if you don't count, like I guess you would count public cloud ones, but there's must be like way over five, right? Yeah, I was wondering what number you were going to choose there. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it was way over a thousand. Uh, yeah, no, there's, you know, obviously people use Docker Hub, at least for messing around. Google's got a popular uh-huh. one. You know, Red Hat's got one they acquired through one of their acquisitions, and now there's Harbor, and, and some other ones that at least expose some of the Docker API. So it seems like there's at least a handful of ones that people use, but yeah, it hasn't exploded to like dozens, but it does seem like this will be interesting, because arguably this is one area where maybe when you're getting started with Kubernetes or containers, you don't pay immediate attention to. It's just, yeah, let's just build some containers and push them up to Docker Hub or whatever. But I think as people start getting serious, they realize they want to have a lot more curation and control over base images. They want to make sure they're patched. They they don't want to introduce accidental vulnerabilities. So it seems like as you mature, if you don't already do this up front, you pay a lot more attention to the registry. Yeah, I, I remember, as as perhaps you do, back in the WS Star era, there mm-hmm. were uh, there were many registries. And I mean, this is slightly different, but there was registries and direct, I guess they were directories, not registries. But a similar sort of, uh, you've got a centralized thing that is key to your whole system. Otherwise, it kind of like comes crashing down. And right. uh, back then, uh, open source software in that category was not extremely popular like it is now. And so I wonder, I wonder how that will play a role in uh, consolidation of registries. Because it does seem, it, w- it would seem weird if you had like 30 of them <laughs> running around there. But I don't know. May, maybe there is uh, there's there's ways of validly differentiating between all of the different registries that you would have, such that you would have like fifty or sixty or just all sorts of ones of them. Yeah, it's a good question. It just seems like as long as they implement the standard API, which they do, so that you know, in theory, when I can push a Docker image to Pivotal Cloud Foundry today, right? I can push source code or images as long as I point it to a valid registry, they, like, it's the same API to talk to. So you're, as always, you're adding features around it to make it more useful, but the, the core interaction's the same. So that'll be interesting to see. Sure, is there an explosion of registries that add new features while keeping compatible interfaces? You'd suspect so, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of another, uh, another man, I'm trying to think which, which thing this was. It was probably Estio or something like that. But Or no, it was the... Uh, uh, it, it was the, the, the K-native or the K-native or however you're supposed to say it. I, th- I, think, I think there was a video somewhere that K-native is, is, is the right thing. Is that right? right. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, I was watching that, uh, the, uh, the video that had, uh, I only remember uh, DeWitt Clinton off the top of my head and, and, mm-hmm. and one of our people whose name I should remember and then the other guy uh, who was in there. And uh, it, it was interesting the way they were talking about uh, K-Native. And, and it reminded me of the old, uh, you know, JEE stuff, where we have basically like these interfaces and APIs, and we maybe sort of kind of have uh, some code implementation. I mean, it's only in uh, like, like uh, alpha-ish at the moment, so it's not finished out. Sure. But, but we, don't, we maybe or maybe don't provide the whole implementation of things. And then analogously, in the same way that in the... Uh, I'm I'm way old, so I always think J2EE <laughs> instead of J3EE or whatever. But back in the uh, enterprise Java day, you would have all these app servers that would basically implement uh-huh. your uh, your stuff, and it seems like uh, analogously uh, similar. 
to that, at least off the, you know, the way it was being spoken of as a a standard for doing things and specking out the components. And then it would also be like uh, insultingly fun to do some like J2E thing and draw lines between them of like, you know, here's the, the registries and here's how you look things up and here's how you manage the traffic. Hopefully there's EJBs in there somewhere. I think people love EJBs and and maybe we can creak that in somehow. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, we glossed over the K native stuff for a moment, but you know, we did get to work on that for a few months ahead of time. It was native until like two weeks before. And then they added the K back in. It used to be, used to be silent, which of course made sense. Mm. So trying to get back to calling it K native was difficult, but you know, without being hyperbolic, this feels like one of the more important things that gets announced in 2018 tech wise. And I only say that because if you're running Kubernetes, you're probably going to end up putting this on top. And just given how ubiquitous Kubernetes has become, this feels like a significant thing. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it crashes and burns. Who knows? But Knative seems like a nice way to put app-centric, function-centric abstractions on top of a layer that, frankly, most devs shouldn't be messing around with. Like, if I'm trying to focus on software, I don't want to de- deal with DNS and load balancers and container orchestrators. That's not my... That's not where I should be spending my time. So if you can give me better abstractions, and it's a complex abstraction, it's not trivial, but if it can be run as a service in something like Pivotal Function Service or Google's function capabilities, it seems like this might be super important. So I guess we'll go, we'll see, but this was a, a surprise announcement for most. It actually leaked zero leading up to the announcements, which, which was pretty surprising given how many people kind of knew about it. So it seems like a big deal. Uh, I'm glad we're involved in it, I guess, the Stay tuned for how big of a deal it is. Now, now I know you follow all this stuff closely, especially when it comes to words. You know, this is basically your business, right? Words, how, <laughs> wor- words, yeah. and and uh, pictures on, on right. PowerPoints. But uh, so, so you know, when they're talking about K native, it was sort of like this is uh, for serverless. Serverless, it was like every every third to twentieth word mentioned. <laughs> and then, and then, like how how are you thinking through how you would distinguish K native is for serverless versus like I use Kubernetes to run applications. Like, what's the what's the distinction that, but between those two things, if any? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to come out over time. I mean, in essence, it, it's taking you up a layer, saying, "Do I want things that are more app aware? Do I want things that are more function aware? Do I want to deal with these primitives, which are just Kubernetes and containers, and yes, custom resource definitions and all the power that's in an orchestrator? Or should I think about if I have code and I just want that code to run somewhere?" which sounds a lot like the Cloud Foundry sort of value prop, right? But with functions as well for Knative, because there's a whole build service there. Like, just give me my function source code, build it, and then run it on Kubernetes. I don't really care that it's Kubernetes, just run this thing for me. Mm. So I think it continues to try to move up the abstractions. It says, as a dev, if I'm being paid to ship software, I'm probably not being paid to figure out some of the plumbing if I can help it. So why don't I just keep staying good at software? So it seems like it's trying to move everyone up a layer and it's it's hoping you focus on source code and not necessarily having to focus on packaging and configuration. Right, right. And and there was a there was a demo by the other Google guy whose name yeah. I can't remember. And uh, it was just a basic I mean there was two demos he had. One was a uh, a hello world demo where he built his own container and then a uh, he had the system build a container for him. And yeah, I mean I guess what'll be interesting to see is uh uh, when, at what point do you not deploy your application fully, I'm doing air quotes here, serverless, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it, it would be nice to uh, think about, so if I'm doing a, uh, and I've gone above, sort, well, I'll just use Knative as, as the, the demo example. Like, 
doing that style of programming, could you do an entire online banking system from it, like seeing your accounts and transferring money and bill pay? Or is yeah. there some sort of, uh, to be jokey about it, do I need some server full layers? Uh, <laughs> and and let's, let's assume there's no like legacy stuff you need to support or, you know, any stuff like that. Sure. It's just a brand new application. Yeah, I mean... You know, being I'm purposely steering all these conversations towards serverless because you know that that's a part that we're spending a lot of attention on. But in reality, this is just apps. So apps run on Knative, and yes, they're more ephemeral, scale to zero apps, which we think of as more of, of serverless and functions and things like that. But in reality, I, I can deploy just apps to Knative. Now, is it going to be as friendly to some legacy stuff and things like that? Probably not. I'm still going to have, as always, multiple sorts of abstractions for different types of workloads. But it feels like, I mean, yes, in, in some cases, I could run full systems on Knative with different types of apps, some that potentially are function sort of stuff, others that are just full-blown apps, and then having the eventing subsystem that works between them, which is part of Knative as well. We'll see if that's a pattern that emerges or if this kind of gets used for one sort of workload and you still have other sorts of abstractions for more stateful stuff or long-running services or streaming or what have you. But, you know, it's an exciting way to to maybe have us spend a little less time on infrastructure plumbing and a little more time thinking about software. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that seems to be, that, that was what was exciting about that demo is uh, here's, a, here's a more concrete example of how serverless is just a new way of doing application programming and not, mm-hmm. not sort of like the lesser thing of like, you know, a lot of the conversation here about serverless is like, it's these uh, ephemeral event-driven things that run and, and you're, yeah. kind of, you're kind of left to think of them as like, weird little magic scripts somewhere and not just like <laughs> not just like i wrote a go application and i put it in the docker container and now it's running yeah <laughs> right which and and it, it also is sort of like um i mean the legacy thing is always a problem i always think of uh, i you know i was never a big physics person but i remember a lot of physics equations were like well first of all let's assume friction doesn't exist and I think I think I think that's the uh, the equivalent of like let's just assume legacy doesn't exist. So we just take friction leg and legacy off the table to have sort of a pure understanding of things, which is fine. But but it does it does seem like uh, when you started thinking about it in that way, it's interesting that it gets back to the cycle of uh, of uh, like no ops. Like a long a long time ago, I have to go look this up. It must have been like four years ago. Everyone in the DevOps world, or not everyone, but the discussion in the DevOps world. Was mm-hmm. like this no ops thing is crazy. There's, there's, uh, it's not that there's not going to be any operators, so we shouldn't say no ops. But then on the other hand, like you kind of like think about, you look at that demo and other things, and it does seem like, you know, in a less sassy way, uh, this vision that we had of no ops in the past can sort of come to fruition. And instead, there's, you know, mm-hmm. platform ops and SRE and things like that. But it's right. uh, in the same way that like, uh, I think maybe two or three years ago, all of the uh, all of the, the you know um, uh, you know hair color tinted people at all the DevOps stuff were saying how serverless was ridiculous as a name, and now everyone says it as a name. Like this kind of like this cycle of uh, these phrases that come and go. There you go. I, I think li- magic little scripts is probably the the title of this episode. <laughs> That's right. Hold me closer, I mean, magic little script. Yeah. So the yeah, the last piece of news, I think you might have added one more. Was also related to this was the uh, was the Istio 1.0 and and this stuff's kind of plumbing for people. This idea of service meshes and control planes and sidecars and like gosh sakes, if I can't keep track of, of Kubernetes and serverless, why do I have to care about a, a freaking service mesh? So on one hand, I guess people could tune this stuff out and feel like it's just noise, but 
it is something that's important to platform builders. It's something that our, our pivotal post actually did a really nice job telling kind of a history story that explains why this stuff matters and why this is coming into Cloud Foundry and why this is something that platform builders should care about. I mean, should most you know, enterprise engineering teams be deploying this stuff? I don't know. It still feels like potentially you, you want something integrated by a platform provider, but you can. So, but there's also gonna be some new architecture paradigms that come from this. As you think of sidecars versus things embedded in your code itself or things like circuit breakers or distributed tracing and instead moving that into the service mesh. Like these are now fundamental conversations we're gonna have to have about where does this stuff belong? So I guess my advice is don't, I mean, be on the sidelines, maybe keeping an eye on it. Maybe don't jump in with two feet on deploying these things, but don't ignore this conversation because I think it's gonna impact how you are deploying software as an enterprise in the next couple of years at the at the latest. Yeah, I, I, and to sort of reprise something I was talking about earlier, I think uh, as, as you're saying, there's sort of like this coalescing of standardization and I don't think you're supposed to talk about standards nowadays. <laughs> I think I think in the post like W WS star like era, we can't ever have standards again. Very very bad to have standards. You don't want no that. Standard. But let's right. say let's pretend like we can use that word. But there's uh, <laughs> there's standards that are emerging, and as pretty much everyone on the on the vendor side and the user side and then the uh, open source side, like really things turn out better when there's standards. Uh, because one, uh, you know, if you're, if you're buying on the buy side, someone consuming this technology, like you kind of know what you're getting into. You understand, I want to buy something that satisfies the standard operates this way. And I can focus on if it's the best way of doing it and how performant it is, or if I like the way it does it, but you don't have to focus on like understanding what serverless means or, mm-hmm. or, or what cloud native means. And then of course, on the production side, people like making and selling stuff. It's good because you don't have to like spend a lot of money reinventing everything. Like it just makes everything more efficient to have standards around this, which it's uh it's, it's probably for the better that things coalesce towards that. And you know, it's nice to have like a period of innovation where uh there's all these different standards happening and you've got your thousand flowers of blooming and grass that gets <laughs> cut cuz it's too high or something. But uh you know, eventually you want to coalesce down into just a few things or it's or it's madness. So one one just little fun thing, uh, I haven't actually used this yet because because I've been moving as I mentioned. Uh, but I saw that Amazon released this thing called Part Finder, and you know hmm. it doesn't really have anything to do. Well, it, it sort of does, but as I understand it, you can like point your camera at a physical object, and it will say that is like a three and a quarter inch or I don't know twenty millimeter uh, screw. And hmm. of course, Amazon's motivation is like so you can go buy some. But it is, sure. it is like, uh, it's an intriguing, and I've noticed my son has this issue every now and then is, well, actually, I'll tell you exactly what happened. We, we were in the, the airport here and he found half of this weird little wooden thing with spikes on it. And he kept asking what it was. And I was thinking like, oh, if only we had the part finder and we could just uh-huh. point it at it and it would tell him what that thing was. But it's a fun idea. And I'm sure it's not this great and universal, but it's, it'd be a fun idea that you could just sort of walk around. And I guess whether you want to think of yourself as that uh, Terminator view or maybe the Predator one, I'm sure in Star Trek, there's one that's like peace loving and non-capitalistic or something, but like <sighs> that you could just point your little camera at something and have it tell you what it was and information about it. Seem, it seems like a, a really interesting use of a lot of like, uh, you know, giga technologies we've been talking about for five years with uh, augmented reality and machine learning sure. and 
that's the stuff that normal people can relate to and not all the necessarily plumbing stuff that sometimes we geek out over, but it's actually not outcome oriented. So the things you're talking about, that's the actual outcome, right? That's the things that somebody will make money on and make me want to use your service. Yeah. And now that I think of it, you know, I don't know if you've had this problem, but you know how you're uh, like, I never really know which screw I should be using for some, or it, you got to match a drill bit to a screw. Now, that's always uh-huh. a problem. And that would be a great little AR thing is to put like a screw down and have it say, you need the three-fourths drive, you know, screw uh, drill bit, or you need this one. That would actually be great. That's kind of, you know, the first AR thing that I saw that was really useful was the uh, hanging pictures AR thing. Do you, hmm. you ever use one of those where, I have. you know, I don't know, maybe you don't have this problem uh, over there in the Pacific Northwest, but typically, uh, let's say you've got two people in a relationship. One of them wants to hang a picture on the wall. And the other one is like, maybe what I'd like to do is anything else. Uh, (laughs) Because what will happen is you want to make sure the picture's even. And so you hang the picture up. uh, And and it's, of course, not even. And the other person is like, you know, maybe you move the left up a little bit. And then you do that. And it's not even. And, you know, you're trying to make it level. But there are some apps that you could use. I'm I'm sure they're still around. And they would tell you basically, like, where to put the holes so that things would be even. And uh, so relationships can be less stressful, essentially. Indeed. I think also in the past two weeks, the, 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 a lot of the sessions for Spring One platform were announced. I forget the exact date, but every year we like to kind of go through and uh, talk about ones we're looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've both been involved in, uh, I mean, you've done some track chairing and a whole lot more as well. So you kind of have been watching things as they evolve. But uh, yeah, there's, you know, looking through our list, there's a few that we both chose. So we've got a good, good Venn diagram, but not, not that overlapping. So I think uh, this year, speaking of track chairing, I was, uh, as, as I was last year and maybe the year before, I don't really remember. Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was helping out along with several other people on the, uh, the newly, every year this track gets a little different, but we have the, the DevOps pipeline and Agile track. And I think what's fun about that track is uh, Agile's added in there. Which, which has shown up here and there uh, in the past, but it's a huge, mm-hmm. uh, huge part of what Pivotal customers do. Uh, you know, the whole point is improving the way you do software. So they should be doing right. their software in an agile way. So there's a few sessions uh, in there that I think uh, will be interesting to, to see. One of them, and I remember going to this one, there's one called uh, Data-Driven Decision-Making for Product Development, which mm-hmm. by far is not the longest title of a talk I have <laughs> in my list. So you can get ready for that. You know, I'm always a fan of very long titles, so I'm looking forward to them. But I think what's interesting about this talk is, uh, you know, it's essentially, you know, we talk a lot about, or at least I do, about the point of doing software better is to put it and using all this container stuff and cloud native things, whether you're serverful or serverless or you've got ops or you're no ops or whatever, is eventually you want to have good software. And the way you're going to have good software is to put a, a fast feedback loop or a small batch process in place where you can deploy some software and every week you can observe how it's being used and make product decisions based on it. And this talk, I think, is uh, going over how you do that, what it looks like, as the title says, to make data-driven decision-making for product development. And I, and I think it's it's a topic that is... Uh, I don't know, it's discussed every now and then here and there, but it's never really discussed as much as I would like it to. For example, now I'm going to have to go find the link to this. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think the one of the, um, I guess it's sort of academic, but one of the academic sort of citations for the idea that you should observe what your users do and it will make your software better is this 
I think it's maybe like a 2008 Microsoft write-up where yeah. I think it was in maybe in Bing or Xbox. They were they were looking at user behavior and they tracked, uh, I don't know if it was all, but they tracked a lot of features that they had put into the version of the software. And they found out something that like only, I think it was like 30% of the features were used in a way that their product managers originally thought they would be used in which is a, a little bit of a weird wording. It basically means that uh, 70% of the work that they did didn't really result in what they wanted. Like the feature didn't really work out very well. So I bring that up because that's sort of like the most widely known citation of like data-driven things. So it's always good to get a lot more of those things out there because, you know, I guess that was a decade ago or more. And uh, But it'll be interesting to see what uh, the two speakers in there so awesome. how about how about you? What's uh what's one? We'll go back and forth. Which one of the yeah, we'll go back and forth. Yeah, I know. For those who uh, haven't attended Spring One before, we did update some of the track stuff. I know Cote, you had mentioned that you know not specifically just a, a DevOps track. We're doing some agile stuff in there as well. We added some serverless attention this year, a Kubernetes track, just kind of reflecting reality of what are our customers doing, what is Pivotal offering. So the tracks continue to evolve. The main stage, which I'm responsible for. Uh, has come together really nicely. There's actually code every day on stage, including the third day. So you're always going to have code demos and then kind of people talking about outcomes and then back to some product updates and just keeps a, hopefully a good vibe. We also have different MCs every day just to mix it up. So people like Josh Long and Dormain on day one and Diogenes and Lauren on day two, Peter Humphrey and, and Andrew Clay Schaefer on day three. It's kind of keep up... Uh, keep things unexpected. So it should be fun. Just the, the vibe continues to change every year just for fun. So you don't get bored. But when you look at the talks that I'm, I was flipping through, you picked more than me and I was trying to down select. I guess I shouldn't have. Uh, one of the ones I picked was, it was use cases for Istio and Envoy integration with Cloud Foundry with, with Shannon and, and Usha and, and Shri as well. I think they've uh, two or three of those have been on the podcast before. But one of this was, as we just talked about, you know, as we think about Istio, as we think about Envoy and Cloud Foundry, like, who, who cares? Like, what is all that doing for the platform? So for them to be able to come in and they explain this stuff well is, like, what is this going to enable in the platform? How is this going to make it possible to have potentially clusters talk to each other or different abstractions talk to each other? You mentioned, Cote, this idea of, hey, would maybe my whole banking architecture just be on something like Knative, or does it still spread across? And if we assume the answer is it spreads across, how can the networking be transparent? Like, I don't want to care that this is on Knative and this is on some other Kubernetes cluster and this is on Cloud Foundry. I just want things to reach each other and talk to each other and it doesn't matter. So what happens when networking becomes just this sort of connected mesh that spans clouds, spans different facilities, spans different clusters, abstractions? So I think that's where we're starting to go with this. So I'm interested in this particular talk just to see how we're starting to plant those seeds. Yeah, and no, that, that will be... Uh... Good, good to see that. I mean, I think that's like looking through all of the talks and I, I won't go over all the talks because uh, I did or the ones I selected. But there is uh, there's like a whole lot of new topics even from from last right. year as, as we were going over. I mean, we've had uh, there's there's, of course, some Istio things. And there's there's another good one. I forget the name of comparing Spring Cloud to Istio, which right, I, right. I would be eager to see. That's always one of my first questions. Uh, yep. And uh, there, there's also, you know, also in the as I mentioned, the DevOps track. Uh, talks about pipelines now, which, and uh, I remember making sure we selected a sufficient amount of pipeline talks, which I think is another thing that is good to start highlighting because, 
it seems like, I don't know which one would be number one versus number two. That's always kind of a uh, false distinction, but it seems like one of the most important assets you have is your, uh, your build pipeline, right? Like a lot of, a lot of problems that get solved, uh, get done in your, your build pipeline because of the automation and the tracking and the kind of non-manual way of doing things all the way from compliance things to, uh, handling security to just like making sure your code works. <laughs> and then the, uh, the ability to roll back and run multiple versions, all of these things are made a lot easier by your build pipeline. So there's a couple of, of se- uh, sessions on that. And one of them that, uh, you know, I always like actual customers talking because us people at Pivotal are great and brilliant. But uh, then it would just be, if it was only Pivotal people talking about how we did stuff, it'd be a conference about software vendors, which might be fun, but not as widely applicable. So there's one called, uh, uh, as short a title as you can have, two words, called Extreme Pipelines that has a, a MasterCard person and a Pivotal person on. And it yeah. goes over how uh, MasterCard built up their pipeline and, and you know some lessons learned with it. And so that'll be a good talk to look at for people who are uh, you know curious about actually building out a pipeline. And I say actually because you know what I tend to find is uh, based on questions people are asking and what they're using, they might have like a continuous integration uh, pipeline so to speak, in place, but they may not have the full-blown pipeline uh, that you would expect from people. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that'll probably be a fun one to check out as well. Yeah, no doubt. Related to that, you had mentioned one uh, in your in your notes about this, but it was one I flagged to around zero to multi-cloud related to that, because that point of, okay, how do I actually kind of take what I'm doing in probably multiple environments, multiple clouds even, and just have some automated deployments to each of those? It doesn't feel unique each time. And actually, frankly, right before I jumped on the uh, the podcast, I was reading some thoughts from, from Mitchell at HashiCorp, who had, had some good answers today around what does multi-cloud mean? What's the point of it? And again, it was kind of consistency of some of these things across environments and what does it take to achieve that? So, I mean, this talk by our folks from John and, and Martin, thinking about that and how they use Spinnaker, how they use Spring Cloud Pipeline, I think that's important stuff. Because if we assume the future is I have lots of infrastructure in different places, how can we at least have consistency to all of them so that your choice of cloud is made at the last responsible moment, not the first thing you're figuring out? And if we can do that, that seems to offer a ton more flexibility. Oh, and I think also, as always, Marcin has figured out how to get multiple talks accepted. He's, he's always clever, talking multiple yeah. times. I think the other one he's talking on is, uh, is going over at Zipkin, which, ah, which uh, I saw that. will be exciting. Uh, it's always fun to see tracing, mm-hmm. you know, for tracing. someone, for someone who used to uh, walk S&MP MIBs, I always like a good uh, tracing story. <laughs> do, you, do you ever do that? Do you ever get like a home router or home Wi-Fi access point and you're very excited because there's S&MP on there or, or, you, you know, you can turn it on in, in uh, I guess it was OS 10 back then. You can turn it on in Mac OS and then you can just sit there sort of look at your S&MP stuff. Man, you, you have more fun than me. I need to <laughs> that's, that's change a, my routine. <laughs> that's a good response. You have more fun than me. Uh, yeah, yeah. What's your next one? Well, I think uh, there's, the, speaking of uh, people doing things, as it were, customers, there's, I, I didn't write down the whole, uh, the whole title for it, but there's, uh, Boeing has a talk that they're doing uh, with mm. a pivotal person. And I'm, you know, other than it being from, uh, you know, Boeing's an interesting company to see how they uh, do software. Because um, I guess most people know them for airplanes, which, you know, important that that stuff works. Uh, mm-hmm. And also is a huge enterprise managing the supply chain and all the contractors, let alone your own people and the parts to do it. So they have big, complicated problems. 
but they also do, uh, you know, defense contracting, which has to be like regulated and secure. So, you know, they're one of these companies that sort of like, if they can do it, what's your problem? Um, and the other, so they're, they're just a good case in general or company in general to see how they're improving the way they do software. And then also last year at Spring One Platform, uh, Nikki Allen from there, she gave a, um, she gave a talk. It was a pretty short keynote. I mean, as, as it should have been, but it was a good sort of like, here we are launching on our initiative to improve how we're doing software. And she gave a good, um, what I'd call sort of like vision level, uh, thinking about here's what we want to do and how we want to do it. And some early lessons of how we motivate people, which, um, I don't know if you're a developer and you hear the word vision, you probably like tune out and go check read it or something like that or Reddit, however you say it. Uh, <laughs> but it is like, it turns out at the enterprise level to be extremely important to uh, figure out your vision and your leadership and your management and your teams and then individual staff contributors to kind of like walk down the hierarchy, speaking of, mm-hmm. of MIBs. And so it'll be interesting to like, uh, I've watched that talk many times from my booklets and stuff, but it'll be interesting to see, uh, the connection between those two and how those practices are being put into place. And I think sort of analogously also from last year, uh, there was, there was like a keynote talk from, uh, I forget his name, but this guy from, uh, is it synchronicity? I think the, uh, the synchrony. card synchrony. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I think I have an Amazon card through them, but this, this person was laying out on the keynote kind of like the vision of what they were doing at a very high level uh, thing. And then there were a couple of sessions last year that were, you know, like 40, 50 minute sessions about, uh, how they had done that work. And it was fun to see the connection between the high level vision of like, we want to shoot towards these, uh, I don't think they call them KPIs, but these end results. Uh, and we're kind of on this journey because of this reason. And then like, here's how we set up Pivotal Cloud Foundry mm-hmm. and, and how we connect to those two things. So they'll make a nice little suite of uh, talks, hopefully. Nice. Yeah, and we have the Boeing CIO, uh, Ted, who will be on stage for main stage as well this year. So kind of a progress report and different update on what they're working on. So it'll be a nice, nice bookend to what Nikki did last year. Good. My, uh, I got a couple of spring ones. I, I pointed out this is spring one. So I guess I should make sure I'm picking spring talks I'm interested in, which isn't hard. There's a, <laughs> a great spring track. Uh, one of them, yeah, I always love watching Dave Sire speak and in one of his talks is how fast is spring? Because I think one thing that we can worry about is, you know, abstraction on an abstraction on abstraction, like what's the performance penalty? What, what tax am I paying for simplicity? And that's often a concern. Even, you know, I had a customer asking me last week, like, Hey, if I'm using Kubernetes, what's my performance drain when I'm hitting the app in there versus bare metal. And that's, you know, kind of a, sometimes you're not really paying much of a tax, but it's good to understand those things. You do feel like there's layers of layers of virtualization. So what's the actual impact? So it looks like Dave's talk's going to focus on Kind of what what's all Spring doing? What are some of these preconceptions you may have about slow slowness and how these apps start up and auto configure? And so he's got some new benchmarks. I've seen him working on some stuff in the Slack channels. And so I think being able to come in saying, look, look, Spring is actually helping you build high performance apps. You're not really paying the tax, but here are things to know. So I think that's really important. So that how fast is Spring is one I'm looking forward to. And then related to Spring, then is one by Guy who is the uh, CEO of Sneak, one of our partners. And he's got some really interesting thoughts on serverless. I've seen him present before. And so, and he's written up some great stuff as well. So I'm excited that he's coming to the show. And he's going to talk about securing Spring functions by breaking in. So again, what does it mean to create a vulnerable function? Like just because you're using these abstractions doesn't absolve you of some responsibility for security. So what are the weaknesses in things like serverless apps and 
apps and functions and how do you avoid those mistakes and what do you have to think about with dependencies or whatever, all those sorts of things. So serverless doesn't mean I don't worry about security anymore. So this talk from Guy and thinking about spring functions, I, I think will be pretty compelling. Yeah, there's probably there probably shouldn't ever be a movement called security list. That's probably not <laughs> I hope not. something yeah. to go for. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe a hello world app could be security list, but I'm sure there's some way that could be exploited as well. So <laughs> well, uh, so I'm going to save the one with the longest title for last. But I think the runner-up for longest title of talk that looks interesting is called. Buckets, funnels, mobs, and cats. Now they're missing that last comma before mobs. I forget if that's a Cambridge, Oxford, or Harvard comma, but maybe I should put that in there for the show notes because that's that's just going to drive me crazy. All right. Buckets, funnels, mobs, and cats, or colon. See, this is my kind of title. How we learn to love scaling apps to the cloud. Now this is from uh, three of the people on our application transformation team. And, uh, you know, it just promises to be about that. How how uh, how they took some legacy applications and uh, started working, or you know, legacy is always a weird word. Some existing applications, sure, and uh, started transforming it around and, and tips and tricks they had from it. And so I think I think that's always a uh, that's that's always an excellent talk uh, topic to to see people going over. And then there's also another another application that looks like it's a way. Uh, I mean, another session called rethinking legacy and monolithic systems. See that one's very straightforward. And uh, it, it looks like it's going to be going over how to apply domain-driven design to basically uh, pull apart your monoliths, which, you know, when you um, sort of, I mean, not really, all the way back to like Michael Feathers, like dealing with legacy code, a lot of what you're doing to, uh, what would be the opposite of legacy? I don't know. Un- legacy? <laughs> you're, anyways, a lot of what you're trying to do when you're trying to uh, rejuvenate your legacy applications is breaking them apart and finding finding ways to, uh, back to the Feathers book, how to test things so you can change them. So finding the seams where you break things, uh, break them in a good way, split them. Uh, and I think, I think a lot of why something like domain-driven design is so helpful is it's that exact kind of architectural science, so to speak. How would we, how would we come up with a method to divide an application into components? And then the method that we want to use, as far as I understand the voodoo of behavior-driven design, is from a, uh, maybe not an end user, but from a business perspective, what are the different components that this business has? And then let's directly, as directly as possible, divide our system up into those business components. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and then that contrasts with like, you could also divide your system up into uh, technical components, like, I don't know, the three-tier application layer where you've got your data layer, your controller layer, and your UI layer, and then all the layers in between for things. So I think I think when I look at, look at uh, how people are doing application modernization, a lot of it involves putting uh, domain-driven design in there. So these, these two talks together should be uh, some interesting fodder to chew over. Good. What else do I have? So I picked one as well. Uh, then we think of customer stories, uh, automation and culture changes for 40 million subscriber platform operations. Blah. It's the story of Yahoo Japan. So I haven't heard a ton about them, but they are, uh, you know, Yahoo Japan supports like a third of the Japanese population. They have tons of services, most of them on PCF. So they have some really interesting stories that just candidly I haven't always heard a ton about. So interested just to hear about the non-traditional stories that, you know, we love our 
kind of our flagship customers at Pivotal, but but frankly, I like hearing completely fresh stories from folks who've been using this for a while, but just haven't been as public with their consumption. So looking forward to that talk. And then as we think about the Kubernetes track, another one I flagged was cloud-native streaming platforms. What's it mean to run Kafka on PKS? You know, we've got folks from Confluent as well as Pivotal talking about Kafka and PKS and what does it mean to run kind of, again, these complex platforms on something like Kubernetes, which is where it makes a lot of sense. One I didn't flag, but I'm also interested in is the one we have that's about running Pivotal Greenplum on PKS. What does it mean to actually run an enterprise data warehouse on containers? And what does it mean to engineer for that? What do you have to consider? Frankly, the uh, or candidly, the tech preview just hit PivNet on Friday. So if you want to mess around with Kubernetes and Greenplum, you can actually do that right now, kind of leading up to the conference. So I think I'm interested in seeing these more complex platforms come to Kubernetes, not just custom apps, which still probably make a lot of sense for Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Application Service, but what does it mean to run a streaming platform like Kafka or a warehouse like Greenplum on PKS? I think there's some things for us to learn there. Mm. You know, on the way over here, uh, I saw the uh, new Pacific Rim movie. I think it's called ah. Uprising. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 you know, people like to use Voltron as, as an example of things coming together. But I, I think there's a potential thing in there. There's this like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's distressingly analogous to the, uh, I forget the name of it, but the new Star Wars movie, you know, with uh, like, uh, not, not, not like this Han Solo one or the Rogue one. I forget what the, the new series is called. But, you know, you have sort of like, uh, you know, this, this sort of orphan girl who's developed her own not giant robot, but I could, mm. they call them Jaegers. Right. I don't know why they call them Jaegers. There's probably some reason because they're trying to be global in their movie stuff. Uh, <laughs> they, they got all the great cultures in, uh, I don't know if they have Latin America in uh, Pacific Rim, but whatever. Mm. Anyways, uh, she creates her own like little robot out of parts that she's found, which is kind of similar to a DIY platform. But then there's the very well-made fit together, gigantic Jaegers, which uh, have these big booming voices and and so I, th I think that's that's like I think you and I have like observed this over time and it's kind of like the standards we were talking about. But there's all these different parts that are like coalescing together into like a nice, uh, you know, big chunk of jello with the little fruit suspended in it. And uh, that, that's evolving more and more. And there's there's a couple other talks about, uh, you know, uh, hey, data, you might want that in your application. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that'll be interesting to look at. So my final one. And this is the one with the longest title by, I think, maybe five or six characters. Uh, and then there's another one related to this. But it's, let me take a breath here. Building digital capabilities in the energy sector, leveraging agile processes and cloud technologies. And this is, this is from uh, Singapore Power. And as always, I enjoy hearing what actual uh, enterprises or organizations are doing. But I think also the other reason I'm, I'm eager to see this one is we have, we have a lot of... Uh, customers who are industrial power company IOT people but we don't we only have a handful of them that seem to uh, publicly talk about it and so there's a lot of industrial companies out there and a lot of interest in IOT so anytime there's something like this that comes up uh, you know a power company sort of hits all of those those things uh, it's really good to like see what they're doing and how they're uh, you know, whether they're doing IoT stuff or planning out or strategizing it and also just dealing with like physical stuff like a power grid and, and yeah. how those industries are evolving. I think those are fascinating to, to see what happens because, you know, um, there's a, I don't know, over my software defined interviews podcast, I talked with uh, John Mitchell at Duke Energy 
it seems like a long time ago now. Uh, but what's interesting, at least in the U.S., about that industry, as he was saying, is that traditionally they've used a lot of off-the-shelf software. Sort and I imagine I don't know who it's from, but um, package software to manage grid energy sector stuff. And what he was saying is the uh, the speed at which that software innovates. For example, to give you mobile apps, just wasn't fast enough for them. And so probably I'm guessing globally it's that same way that people have been using vertical specific software and I don't know power company management. And uh, as those companies want to evolve and do all this like IoT grid management stuff, they're they're finding that they need to write their own software for it. So this is probably like a common pattern that plays over and over again that these companies need to uh, improve the way that they do software. So that one it'll be fun to see if uh, it delivers on my hopes and dreams. And and then. Uh, since that's from Singapore, there's another just transformational one uh, from DBS, uh, Singapore Bank, uh, going over the traditional things in a good way that are nice to see of how we we basically wanted to go digital, if you will. We wanted to have a more, you know, just better software. And it looks like it'll go over the uh, the strategy that they put in place, thinking through like what types of applications they would do. And as always, uh, things that worked for us as we tried to get more of that, uh, as we used to say, Silicon Valley mindset uh, or, or whatever. But uh, so we have at least there's probably some more, but there's at least two uh, people coming over from Singapore to talk, uh, which which is great. It's always good to find an excuse to go over there and get some crabs and also just meet with the uh, super friendly people there. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the goals for the the show this year was also to be a little more international and not so U.S. centric. Mm. So excited we have Rabobank on stage for main stage. We have DBS also doing a main stage talk. And, you know, again, I think it just it brings not only diversity in terms of use cases, but in terms of just, you know, the cultural background and what goes into your choices. And look, is DevOps trickier here versus there because of some other sort of inbuilt or traditional thing? I, I love that. Right. That's that's it's not all just a roadmap from here's how you go from A to A to Z. It's going to zig and zag based on all sorts of characteristics. So I love when we have a, a different type of audience there. Yeah, so the last one I had, I think we both had it, was uh, our own Nate Shuda's Thinking Architecturally. You know, I've, I've really gotten to enjoy his series on microservices he's been working on right now on our blog, you know, book stuff coming out. And, you know, just a really a thoughtful technologist. And so this talk looks like it's focused more on how are we thinking about technology choices on projects? How are we actually making sure we're, we're factoring in the big picture when we're making some of these choices? And how do we choose things at the right level of maturity? And all those sort of things that Nate does a good job chewing through. So I'm excited for that talk. I mean, I always appreciate his take. And I think both of us flagging it's probably a good sign. It's, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I, I think I've seen him give that talk a few times. I mean, not that one, but a, you know, an early version of it, uh, mm. coincidentally, when we were kicking around Europe. And, uh, I, he, uh, he, you know, usually I don't like the, uh, the, the one word per slide thing, but I think he does that pretty well. And, and uh, you know, there's, it, there's a certain entertainment level of that, that I think as he goes through the talk, he's got, uh, he's got that sort of way of doing a presentation down. And then, you know, you, uh, you accent that every now and then with a funny picture of, of course, uh, of sort of failure or celebration. There's never just sort of <laughs> like, uh, you know, funny picture where nothing interesting is happening. Just no, just a field of flowers. That's right. We, you know, that would be a fun challenge just to have a, uh, I think we're going to have Ignite talks. It's our, you know, Ignite karaoke talks. We, we should try to get one that is uh, every single like Windows, like uh, field background <laughs> and just see yeah. what people uh, make with that. And then the last one could just be like Clippy just sitting there. 
for it. And you got to tie it all together with Clippy. You know, that's going to be yeah. or Microsoft Bob or whatever. Yeah, see, so you would clip it together with Clippy. That's 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 how that works out. <laughs> or you could have that. Remember that little dog they had? That, that was yeah. Fun too. Can I, can I help you with a new resume? Like, yes, you can, dog. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's a whole lot more uh, talks that are out there, and and it's yeah. it's pretty easy to go look them up if you just go to springoneplatform.io. Um, and, uh, I think, are, are these all the ones that have been announced or there's some that still haven't been announced yet? Yeah, good question. We've got a last batch that are going to be going online soon. We're actually pretty early. A lot of shows don't put the whole agenda online until a couple of weeks before, but we wanted to give people a chance to plan. So yeah, the whole agenda will be online in the, in the coming week or so, and then get your ticket booked and hotel booked. And it really should be a, a pretty wild four days. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have some good Maryland crabs, all sorts of things, I hope. And, uh, if you're interested all of us have discount codes, but if you want to get $2 off, uh, $2, $200 off. See, they, they got monetary conversion. It's got my mind clunking here. But if you want to get $200 off the ticket, I'll put this in the show notes as well, but you can use the code S1P200 underscore Cote. That's my name, C-O-T-E. And uh, as I'm fond of saying, I think if, if, I, if I, people use this a few times, I might get a fancy pin. Now, this might be the same pin that you get in your gift bag. But I'm going to think that it was a reward for all of my effort in getting people to register. So, yeah, if you're uh, interested in all this, just go to springoneplatform.io and you can check out all the other sessions. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, fun pictures of people. You should find the one picture where the guy has drawn some sort of uh, dinosaur spikes around his eye. That's a, that's a good one. You don't see that too often. Uh, and, and with that, this has been another episode of Pivotal Conversations. If you want to find all the uh, the archives and, and the, uh, the shows, find an RSS feed you can subscribe to. You can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations with no space or anything, just one word. Um, and, you know, you can also search around in whatever podcast listener you're looking for. And every Thursday, usually, uh, I put the full show notes we keep mentioning over on pivotal.io slash podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. The dog was done too. Perfect. Perfect close. <laughs> <laughs> Just right. That's right. <laughs>